The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor of the magazine. This episode features my conversation with Rick Garlick, PhD, Vice President of MAGID, a business strategy consulting firm. We discuss what hotels and other travel-dependent properties can do to rebound from COVID-19, with a special focus on rebuilding trust with potential customers. He discusses data and metrics available to the travel and leisure sector, which will help commercial real estate professionals anticipate where the market is headed. Rick, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Nick. It's great to be here, and I appreciate your time and interest in our work. Yes, for sure. And you recently published a white paper uh, where you cite trust as a critical determinant in people returning to hotels and airlines. Uh, you know, what insights can you draw from this concerning the future of hospitality and travel-related real estate? Well, it's interesting because, as you know, right now, people are very scared to engage in public situations. And uh, the hotel industry, as one example, has gone through a lot of um, procedures to upgrade their safety protocols, their health protocols. The American Hospitality Lodging Association has published these safe stay guidelines sometime in April. And we looked at the level of trust for hotels in uh, April, when we started doing the study, it was, I think, 42%. And two months later, a month after these safe stay initiatives had been put in place, trust had actually gone down one percentage point to 41%. Uh, so no traction. And also, we see in other situations, airports, airlines, uh, certainly cruise ships, uh, anything that casinos, all these different travel, leisure, and hospitality venues that involve public interaction we either saw no gain or we saw some decline. And I know a lot of effort's been done and a lot of money's been invested into trying to upgrade health and safety protocols, and yet trust doesn't seem to be impacted. And so we looked at a lot of why that is, like what is it that's keeping people from trusting and re-engaging in the travel and leisure sector? And what we found is you know, three reasons. First of all, people believe, and I think rightly so in many regards, that the travel and leisure space is a petri dish for COVID-19, that it's easily get when you're in public environments and close proximity to people. The second reason is that they don't fully trust that these travel and hospitality and leisure venues are going to enforce the necessary protocols to ensure health and safety. And the third reason why trust is low is because people don't trust their fellow travelers even if these protocols were put in place, they don't trust their fellow travelers to observe them. So anecdotally, when I've had these conversations with people, anecdotally, everybody seems to have a story of how they got on a plane or they went to even a luxury hotel and found that people weren't wearing masks, they weren't practicing social distancing. It was really business as usual. So the best insight that I can give for those listening to the podcast is if you're in charge or managing one of these venues, that more enforcement is preferable to less enforcement. I think that there's some belief that um, people don't want to necessarily come across as rude or overbearing by 
telling people they have to wear a mask or they have to keep their distance or these sorts of things. And what our data show is that people want that. You know, they want that a lot more than they don't want that. So don't be afraid or shy to, to do these things because it's really the way to re-engage and also communicate the things that you're doing because that seems to be another uh, big piece that's missing. As we talk to airports and, and other public venues, uh, their frustration is, hey, we've done a lot, you know, to make our airport safe or our hotel safe, and yet we don't seem to be getting credit for it. Why is that? And then it becomes an issue of communication and, and effectively disseminating that information through credible and believable sources. Yeah, it, it seems like an interesting situation where, you know, naturally people will be hesitant to travel, but you're also, um, you know, if you are running a, a, a hotel, you have to not only overcome the reality of COVID, but also show people that you are being proactive and also doing what needs to be done and, and to make them feel safe. Well, serious about enforcement. I think that's the key thing because, you know, again, there's so many stories out there. And you know, I, I could tell you uh, 10 colleagues I've spoken to who said that they've actually gotten on a plane and found, you know, people were sitting right next to each other. Nobody was wearing masks. And, and then you hear other stories. Well, they flew a particular carrier that was enforcing these things. So the enforcement seems really inconsistent. And because of that inconsistency, it's it's hurting everybody. Yeah. And, and for strategies to kind of build trust with, uh, you know, with the public, what advice do you have to hotel owners and operators, you know, outside of being clear and, and communicating what they are doing? Well, what we're seeing is we're not seeing the messaging really sticking because, like I said, there's been a lot of messaging that's been put out since you know, partnerships with uh, Clorox, you know, the airlines and, and all these things that these hospitality, travel and leisure venues are are doing and steps they're undertaking to try to get people to trust them enough to re-engage. And, and it's not working. So why isn't it working? Well, words don't really seem to be sticking. You know, what people need to see is they need to see believable evidence visually in many cases that, you know, they're basically doing their part to ensure safety. So what we've been telling people is that it's really important to use social media channels to promote that. It's also important to use TripAdvisor reviews to have people actually talk about what they saw at the hotel or at the uh, on the airport and the plane that gave them that sense of assurance and trust because people believe other travelers more than they believe the uh, venues themselves. And so it's really using the social media channels effectively to to try to get the word out and create this sense of believability that you now these people are serious and they're not just simply saying one things and then I show up and, you know, it's not at all what they said it was going to be in terms of health and safety protocols. Yeah. And it's interesting how with, you know, with the pandemic, we're very mindful of the science and the data, but at the same time, you know, the, the anecdotal evidence is very important where, you know, if your cousin traveled and had a good time or, or, you know, your friend tells you about a, a hotel or an airline's doing it right, you know, that's going to stick with you. And that kind of story is, is something that's, that's going to change minds. Right. And, you know, again, just, and similarly, uh, conversely, if someone says, yeah, I, I went down to hotel X and nobody was wearing masks and nobody was social distancing, you're not going to go there. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I, I think that, you know, we are a nation and a lot has been discussed obviously as to why, we haven't had more success battling COVID-19. And a lot of it is because people really value individual liberty. They don't like being told what they have to do and what they don't have to do. And this is, you know, particularly true in a country that 
really places such a priority on individual freedom and individual liberty. And it's really getting people to understand through effective messaging that, look, you know, we want to keep everybody safe. COVID is real. It's not, you know, something that's made up and it still remains a problem, even though some places have opened up and, um, you know, we really want to protect you. We want to protect your safety. And if we at, at times uh, appear to be a bit rude by telling you to, to wear a mask or observe social distancing or, or other practices, washing your hands, uh, it's done for your well-being and to really communicate that sense of benevolence toward toward the travel. It's the only way you're going to get people to cooperate. Yeah. And, and your research also showed, uh, I believe it was from June to August of this year, that there was a slight bump uh, in pessimism for people's outlook on, you know, these these uh, travel related uh, businesses. Um, you know, why do you think people are, are kind of a little bit more hesitant now than they were maybe a few months ago? Sure. And, and think of the time frame of when that was taken. Now, I will tell you that had we been just a couple of weeks later with this podcast, we have another wave of the study in the field now. So, uh, you know, check back with me even anecdotally if you want to know later how it's trending upward uh, right now at the current time. But if you remember, you know, back, you know, the early part when the COVID-19 crisis first hit, people, I think, were feeling a bit optimistic that, you know, eventually in a couple of months, everything would open up and get back to normal, that we'd be well on our way to having this virus under control. And it really didn't happen that way. So if you ask me in April, uh, so do you think you'll take a trip to Florida this year? Sure. You know, I think by June or July, everything ought to be fine. And then in June, you read that, you know, it's record number of cases and Florida is, is leading everybody in, in cases of COVID. And, you know, all of a sudden, what you thought you were going to do back in April, you're not going to do in July. And uh, again, we'll see what happens in August. Uh, so I think that the one thing about the COVID situation, it's constantly fluid. And uh, we've been making the argument that in terms of forecasting the future, and everybody's asking us, well, you know, what's the future going to look like? And, and this is people who are in the investment space and you know, hotel owners, operators, investors, people want to know what the future looks like. And there isn't any precedence to what we're going through now. There's no precedent. So we can only look at what the consumers tell us. That's, in our minds, the only reliable indicator. And it's only reliable for how people are feeling today. Um, and, you know, again, so we publish these projections and uh, they're based on, I believe, that the most reliable indicators available. But at the same time, understanding that if all of a sudden in a month we hear that there's a, a vaccine uh, that's being tested in the final stages, our projections for six months to one year are going to dramatically change. So that's why we believe in the importance of monitoring this on an ongoing basis. And yeah, I guess, and, and along those lines, um, you know, nobody can predict the future, especially uh, that's a lesson we've all learned this year. Um, but in, in your opinion, is there one or two things that, that, uh, that hospitality can do to attract investment and kind of survive in the, in the near term um, and, and kind of get out of this, the COVID uh, disaster that it's currently in? Well, you know, what we've been telling people right now, and this is certainly the short-term solution, is that there is pent-up demand for travel. And so what you're hearing about that is true. So people want to travel, but they don't necessarily feel safe to travel. So, you know, people want to be optimistic about the future, but at the same time, they're being, I, I guess what I would say, cautiously pessimistic. So what we're seeing right now, and, and a lot of uh, folks have picked up on this, 
And I just actually did a study for the Incentive Research Foundation that looks at incentive travel that uh, right now it seems like a lot more people are interested in experiences that don't involve flying, that are more regional. And in a lot of situations, you obviously even can't go from state to state. You know, there's, you know, you've got the quarantine. So people are looking for regional experiences and they're also looking for experiences where they don't necessarily have to interact with a lot of people. So how is a hospitality venue, can you pivot and play into that? Well, you know, one thing is obviously marketing your local area. And uh, I think about the local area that I live in, and there's all these attractions that I've never visited, only because they're so close that I tell myself, oh, I'll get to them someday. I'd rather go you know, to Florida or New Orleans or California. And so marketing the local area and really working with the local uh, visitor and tourism bureaus to focus on how do you drive in, interstate um, travel and, and commerce. So I think that that's the immediate first step. The second step is, and of course, we don't know how long COVID's going to be around, but it's just you know doing the necessary upgrades and investments into you know, all sorts of sanitizing mists and you know uh, electrolytes, you know, all these sorts of things that you know go above and beyond maybe what is even necessary to make people feel safe. But people respond very positively to that. Having you know uh, hygiene officers at the hotel that are very visible. Sometimes it's what I, I call the theatrics of cleaning. That you've just cleaned something, and uh, you know it really doesn't need cleaned again. But just to show people that you're on the job, you're doing more cleaning. So there, there's a certain amount of presentation that's involved to in making people feel secure and understand that trust and feeling secure. It's not a rational thing; it's an emotional thing. And our emotions really control our decisions that we make and, and control the, the judgments that we exercise. And so the more that uh, I can see through my visual senses and just have that sense of constant reassurance, the more successful a hotel is going to be. And then encouraging people to spread the word through social media. Same thing with airlines. Same thing with airports. You know, we've been working uh, a bit with the uh, Port Authority of New, Jer New York and New Jersey on you know, really trying to spread the message of all the great things that they're doing to try to ensure traveler safety. And so, you know, it's really just convincing people that you're serious and that you're, you're doing what you say. And, you know, again, we don't know how long COVID's going to be around or if something is going to be a second wave or, or any of this. But for the short term and potentially the long term, let's say that worst case scenario, COVID does stick around for a while, ensuring people that if you stay or visit or engage with any kind of travel, hospitality, or leisure venue, that all the steps have been taken to make sure that your safety has been assured and the, the protocols are being observed. So that's the best advice I could give to anybody in the hotel uh, travel industry right now. Yeah, it's, it's um, I think, as the, the timeline for COVID extends, you know, like you said, back in April, everybody thought, you know, a couple of weeks, a month or two, we'll be back to normal. And now that we're kind of deeper into it, I feel like, um, the pent up demand you mentioned is like, yeah, you know, we need to get out and do stuff, but we need to get out and do stuff safely. And I think, um, you know, having proactive hospital or, uh, uh, hotels and airports and airlines taking those steps to say, Hey, you know, we are safe is, is a great way to kind of attract business that, that is looking to do things cautiously. Exactly. And for for any for the investors that are listening, uh, what advice or considerations would you have um, 
in the hospitality space, both on, a, on the buy side and the sell side? Well, I would say this, you know, again, right now there's a lot of distressed hotels out there. You know, I, I've heard percentages of fairly large percentages of hotels that are being talked about going into receivership. So there's obviously going to be a lot of distressed hotels that are going to be out there for sale. And uh, I think that, you know, smart buyers are going to, to see that. Uh, for the people that right now are uh, ho- owners of hotels who are trying to manage their bills and you know, keep the lights on, you know, again, it's uh, it's making smart investments in your business. Now, one of the things that I've just been writing about and researching is the fact that there are certain things that guests are willing to pay for as acceptable upgrades and uh, other people, other things people think are just basically the price of doing business. I think it's really wise to explore how you can generate additional revenue. Uh, we know that meetings and group sales right now are, are not going to come back for the foreseeable future, but it's really trying to learn how to pivot and even using, you know, hotels uh, and F&B beverages, for, excuse me, F&B venues for private parties, private events, things where there's a certain amount of social distancing uh, represented, but at the same time, you know, using things that might have been at one time more public spaces, more for private events. So all those are things that you can do to keep some revenue coming in at the time being, but uh, understanding that eventually, and I truly believe this with all my heart, and I, I don't want to just be one of those pie-in-the-sky optimists, eventually the hospitality industry is going to come back. It's really just how long can you hold on and how long can you, uh, you know, wait until, you know, the revenues return before you can you know, ultimately turn a profit again. And I think for the people who are out there waiting to buy a hotel, you know, it's, it's certainly right now it's a, a buyer's market. For sure. Uh, along those lines, if there are hotels either, you know, in the near future that are closed or, or vacant, um, you know, it, within the CCIM community, there's a lot of talk about adapter for use, whether that's for affordable housing, uh, telehealth, um, the, do you think this is something that, that is gaining traction now, or is this something that is in the near future going to be uh, a hot topic? Uh, absolutely. And uh, again, I think that's smart. You know, you've got all these large buildings and, you know, again, I think someday the hospitality industry is going to come back. How many years is that? But right now, affordable, you know, affordable housing, senior living centers, as you know, is an extremely you know, hot area right now in, in which to invest with the number of baby boomers getting ready to retire. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of repurposed uses for, you know, hotel space. And, um, you know, it's just a matter of determining, you know, in the area in which you own your hotel, what, what can you do with it to make it, to make it viable. Gotcha. And uh, you've also done some research on shopping malls, which is another uh, sector of the market that, that is facing an uncertain future. Uh, and I think your, your numbers predicted a loss of $51 billion over the next year. Uh, much like hotels, what can, what can mall owners and operators do to mitigate these, these immediate challenges? You know, it sounds like the, the same story, only there's obviously another layer here that malls are struggling and dealing with. One is, is that the, um, you know, the fact that I have an alternative of doing online shopping, you know, my wife and I have talked a lot about what's Black Friday going to look like this year. You know, I, uh, I'm, I'm one of those rare few that really enjoys going out on Black Friday. 
uh, you know, it's kind of a gladiatorial experience, right? But, you know, my, my wife and I both enjoy it and, uh, you know, being out there with the masses. But I suspect that this year, Black Friday, uh, I have a hard time on knowing what it's going to look like. But, you know, already, you know, malls are, are certainly challenged and in many cases distressed by the fact that so many people are doing online shopping. And I think, you know, the, the thing that I would say to malls to think about is how do you make going to the mall uh, an experience that, that people want to undertake. So again, we can talk about all the, the health and safety protocols we, we talked about for hotels, but back in, back in my youth and my younger days, and even as I got a bit older, I always enjoyed going to the mall because it was more of a social experience of getting out of the house and, you know, experiencing people and getting out to stretch my legs. And, you know, it was sort of interesting. One of the first clients, and this, this shows you how old I am. But one of the first clients of any size that I used to have was Blockbuster Video. And, uh, you know, most people who are listening to this podcast probably barely remember them now. But at one time, they were a Leviathan, right? And what we found is that people really liked going to the video store. You know, they liked the experience of going out on a Friday night, going to the video store, looking at what the new releases are, and then, you know, the whole social interaction that they got from the video store. So over time, that's changed, right? Now you just pop on Netflix or any of your streaming services. And the whole experience of going to the video store is, is no longer something people think about. But I think that you could make going to the mall an experience again for people. And I think, you know, some of that would have to do with having events and things that, you know, again, once COVID clears a bit and uh, there's not a health and safety danger to people, Going in and finding ways to make the mall relevant again from an experience perspective, because I think that there's something innate in human beings, and uh, I, I've seen some neuroscience research on this that likes the interaction with people, and um, they like the face-to-face contact. They like getting out and being with other people, not if it's too crowded, but you know the whole notion of getting out and having something to do. And uh, again, given this COVID environment where we've all been under lockdown. You know, like there are times, and this just shows you, you know, where I'm at. I'll go to our local mall, which is, you know, half empty of stores. And I just like to walk the mall just to see what's <laughs> just for the experience of being out of the house. So I think that if malls play this right, they can, they can help, you know, alleviate some of the reduction that they've not only gotten because of COVID-19, but also this whole notion of people preferring online shopping. Um, you know, the figures that you were speaking to or calculations that we did based on, you know, what we would call baseline behavior of what people had reported their pre-COVID experience to be uh, based and combined with what they expect their experience to be moving forward. And then we took some publicly available data on what the average spend is and then multiplied all that out. And that's how we got that $51 billion. But, you know, again, I think that if COVID goes away, then there's the opportunity for uh, for some of that number to be um, reduced. Yeah. Yeah. And I can just imagine, you know, especially in the Midwest where we're in Chicago and, you know, by, by late November, by December, uh, there's not much you could do outside. So going to the mall and even if it's, you know, 25% capacity, there's at least, I agree that there's something to, you know, being in a mall around Christmas time and kind of that whole, the experience of it. Um, something that can't really be replicated by, by an online shopping experience. Yeah. And you know, it's really unfortunate. Again, I think all of us see COVID as an unfortunate thing for so many reasons, but one of the things that we were talking about a lot 
prior to COVID was how we were moving to what we called the experience economy. So rather than spending money on tangible goods like big screen TVs, people really enjoyed, particularly young people in that millennial category, really liked experiences. They liked dining experiences. They liked shopping experiences. They were all about discovering curated experiences uh, that you know companies were popping up here and there that were just putting experience packages together for people. And that's something, again, that you know as we go into recovery, whenever that is, I expect to see that come back because people haven't fundamentally changed who they are. Uh, but I expect to see that come back. And again, I think that that's an opportunity for hospitality, travel, and leisure venues to partner with some of these companies, put packages together where you can come and not just stay at a hotel, but but have a curated experience that's unique and special. Yeah, and I think as you know, experiential retail was kind of was a buzzword in in the last couple of years. Um, and you know, do you see that demand rebounding or you know, kind of coming back after uh, we get through the the heart of the COVID experience, or is that something that that's a fundamental change? No, I think I think it would rebound because again, people have not fundamentally changed who they are or what they like. And uh, I think again, you know, if people are smart, you know, they're keeping their distance. And, and I can say that uh, without bias. I mean, I'm all for people traveling. I'm all for hospitality and leisure, and I'm all for pumping money into the economy. All those things. But you know, the, the truth is, it's just simply not safe to just go about business as usual right now. And it won't be safe until we get a approvable vaccine. But when that happens, imagine all the pent up demand that people are going to have. And the fact that people, again, haven't fundamentally changed, they just are going to have to learn to trust again. And trust is something that you rebuild very slowly. It doesn't happen overnight. But uh, there are certainly things to do and messaging and creating buzz and all the things that marketers do so well that can get people to reengage once it's safe to go out again. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, like, you, did you call yourself a, a, uh, a skeptical pet optimist or what was your? Uh, cautious, uh, I think cautious optimist or skeptical. Yeah. Pet, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, I think that's, I think, um, you know, with everything that we've gone through in 2020 already, it's, uh, realism and optimism is definitely something that, that, uh, that we can use. Yeah. And there's a whole, uh, I did a white paper on looking at, um, the whole notion of how people are feeling and and one's general sense of optimism or pessimism basically translates to their willingness to trust. So if I'm feeling generally good about uh, life, I'm much more trusting than if I'm feeling generally pessimistic and, and negative. So, for example, this paper that I wrote showed that there's six percent out there who, you know, for them, COVID-19 doesn't exist. Yeah, I yeah. think probably all of them were out on the White House lawn about a month ago. <laughs> but <laughs> those, there's a certain percentage that it just doesn't exist. And, yeah, yeah. You know, they're willing to engage, like, right now, do anything. They're only 6%. Now, again, there's that cautious optimist group of people that generally feel good, but they recognize that there's a concern. And so they're, you know, they're staying close to home. And then there's a, there's a section called what I call the wait and see group. And they're, they're actually 40%. They're the largest percentage of uh, the population. 40% fall into this wait and see group that, you know, they're not positive. They're not negative. They're just kind of taking every day, one day at a time, waiting to see what happens before, you know, they act. And, you know, there's probably a, a lot of those folks, if they got the all clear, you know, would convert into the more positive category. But for right now, they're just not making any commitments one way or the other. Yeah, that, that's certainly, at least to me, that sounds encouraging where it's people just, 
you know, keeping their heads about them and, and, and hoping that, uh, you know, see progress, see things improve. And then hopefully, uh, once it's ready that, and safe, you know, we can return to, to what people used to call normal life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, we're updating this study, uh, should be out in a couple of weeks where we're looking at how people's moods may have either changed or remained the same for the last several months. And, uh, I think that'll be a big indicator too, to just see how, you know, the shift in mood and sentiment is going. Well, that's a great place to, to end it. And, uh, and Rick, I appreciate the time and I appreciate all the insights that you provided. Nick, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. And I, I hope this is not our last conversation. I hope there'll be many more in the future. Yeah, for sure, Rick. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate. 